following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark 15. You knew where to go. Mark 15, page number 852, if you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. It's good to see you all this morning. I want to take just a moment here at the beginning uh, before we go into the Scripture, just to encourage you on two specific points of things that are coming up here uh, this week. So first is the Good Friday service we have this coming Friday night at, is it 7 or 7.30, Jordan? 7. 7? Okay, 7 o'clock. This is over at Redeemer Church. I want to encourage you to attend this for a couple of reasons. One, we don't normally, uh, I think, push or encourage people necessarily to come and participate in an event like this, but that's partially because we don't often do an event like this. But I think it is a very good opportunity for us as believers just to take a few moments, uh, particularly this week, to think about and remember the death of our Lord. And so that's what the service will be focused on. And we would encourage you to be a part of that if at all possible, or, and if it's not possible, to consider making it possible. Um, also along with this is this is a unique service for us because, as you know, it will be the first time we've ever done a joint service with some other churches here in our local area. We've talked about our friendship with other churches in the area, and we don't just say that to put up a good face. I mean, we actually mean it. We have been pursuing now for years friendships with other churches. I don't know how many of you grew up like I did, where churches basically acted like they were competing businesses, and you know, you stay on your turf and I'll stay on mine, and we don't have turf. If, if our churches, our individual churches, are not kingdoms in and to, of themselves, then it makes a whole lot of things easier. And, and, and that's the mindset of, of a number of churches in this area by God's grace, and we have been enjoying the fruit of those friendships. And this is something we've talked about behind the scenes for a long time, of trying to like, give an actual expression to that via gathering together as the larger body of Christ. Not just our individual expressions of the body of Christ, but the larger body of Christ to worship our Lord together and fellowship together. We're one church. We look different individually. We, we do things differently individually, but we believe the same gospel. We worship the same Lord. And so Friday night's going to be the very first time that we have an opportunity to put that into expression. So I want you to come. I want you to be a part of that. I want you to see it. I want your children to see it. I want your children to learn that Cornerstone is not the end all of what Jesus is doing in this world. And so this is just one good expression of how that plays itself out. And I want those of you who come on Friday night to do me one particular favor, okay? When you show up, it will be your default tendency to want to look for all the other Cornerstone people in the room and to go gravitate to them. So even though we may all be in the same room, it'll end up being four individual churches in one room, okay? Um, I want you to do me a favor. I'm, I don't know if any other pastors are asking their churches to do this. This will be a Cornerstone special here. Um, I want you to do your best to avoid sitting with too many Cornerstone people. Sit with another family from your community group or something, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not stopping you from doing that. And there's no, no one's going to, Jordan has talked about being a bouncer that night, but no one's going to let him do it, okay? Um, try to just mingle out. And when you sit down, there's going to be a family beside you or a family in front of you or behind you that you do not know. Will you do the bravest thing you have ever done in your life and say, hi? <laughs> All right? I know some of you are already sweating it out, like you're thinking, I can't do this. Um, 
No, I want you to say hi and introduce yourself and say, I'm from Cornerstone. Where are you from? Oh, you're from this church. How long have you been coming to this church? You know, talk. Try to get to know them. It's not that you're going to build a friendship that night. You just are saying hello and showing that the body of Christ actually means something in terms of kindness and hospitality to other believers, okay? Got it? Very clear? All right, that was number one. Number two, I just want to encourage you in regards to Easter uh, next Sunday. We're doing the two-service thing again, which we've done the last two years. This will be our third year of doing it. So, you know, it's a crazy Sunday morning. It's Easter Sunday, so you get uh, all the priesters, right? Those are the people who only come at Christmas and Easter. So uh, you get all the priesters who show up. And, uh, but you also get, you know, visitors, people who are in the area, family. Uh, will you do your part as members of Cornerstone, part of our church family, to look for those people? And again, say hi. It's not a complicated uh, request I'm putting on you. I'm just asking you to be thinking that Sunday morning about the circumstances that we have. It's an unusual Sunday. I mean, we get visitors every Sunday, and I hope you say hi every Sunday, but next Sunday tends, it may not be this year, and that's fine, but tends to be a Sunday where there are a lot more uh, faces that we haven't seen before, we don't see very often. So this isn't on you. You're the ministers of Jesus Christ who need to be pursuing that, and so I'm asking you to pursue that with some intentionality next Sunday, all right? Got it? Those are my two points. We're going to read verses 42 to 47 here in Mark 15, and then as always, we will go to the Lord in prayer. Mark writes, and when the evening, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we come into your word that you will speak to us, give us clarity of thought and clarity of heart to receive what your spirit has for us this morning. Direct my words and direct us all in our understanding and application of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm curious about something this morning. Um, we're going to do a little show of hands to find out what uh, the stats are on this. Over the past eight years here at Cornerstone, I have taught, I think, the lion's share of new members classes that we have offered here at Cornerstone. I haven't taught them all. In fact, I didn't even teach this last one we offered on, on March 7th. I couldn't be there for that one, so Caleb taught. But, but by and large, I think I've taught the majority of the new members classes. So here's my question to you, this room this morning. Um, if you have taken the new members class, whether or not you ever joined Cornerstone coming out of it, but if you have taken the new members class when I was your teacher, would you raise your hand? Okay, all right, thank you. For those of you who just raised your hand, I want to apologize in advance because I'm about to say something that I have said in every new members class since I started teaching these in 2007. And for those of you who haven't yet taken the class and will take it one day when I teach it, perhaps I'm going to repeat myself at that point as well. Um, we always begin our new members class by talking about the gospel. 
And I would hope that the reason why we do that is obvious and clear to everyone. That is, you cannot be a member of a local church. And when I use that phrase, local church, what I'm referring to is a specific group of individual believers who have gathered together in a certain place at a certain time for the worship and service of our Lord. You cannot be a member of a local church unless you are first a member of the universal church. And the universal church, I, by using that terminology, I am referring to the, the church that Jesus is building, where every believer from all time and every location is instantly a member simply by the fact that they believe in him. If you have not become a member of the universal church, then you should not become a member, and you cannot become a member here at Cornerstone of a local church. Simple enough. Um, and so we begin each membership class talking about the gospel, making sure people understand what it is and what it isn't. And so I normally start with what it isn't, because that's often helpful, I find, because there's so many false gospels that are, are proclaimed in our world today, where people are told to put their hope in this or that. And so I try to clarify three or four false gospels and make fun of them and try to make people realize they're stupid. Uh, but after I do that, I then normally take the people in the class, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, to show them what the gospel is. And the reason I go to that particular passage is because in my estimation, and you're free to disagree on this point, but in my estimation, that is the clearest, most succinct presentation of the gospel in the entire New Testament. So I'm going to read it to us this morning just so you can see it for yourself. Paul writes in, in verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. So there we go. So he wants to talk about the gospel, so he's going to remind them of the gospel. He says it's the gospel that he preached to them, it's the gospel that they received, it's the gospel in which they stand, and it was the gospel by which they were being saved if they were holding fast to the word that he had preached to them, unless, of course, they had believed in vain. So clearly we're on topic. He's talking about the gospel. So, well, right, what is this gospel, Paul? Well, verse 3 he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now let's just pause and think through this little two-verse verse summary here that he's given us of the gospel. He, he begins by calling Jesus Christ, and you know why does he call him Christ? Well, I think, I hope, at least most of you in this room recognize, but I always clarify it in the class, that when we t call Jesus, Jesus Christ, we're not indicating that Christ is his last name, as if he was born to Joseph and Mary Christ and grew up in the Christ family. You know, that's not what we're meaning by that, though I think some people forget and begin to think of it in that way. The word Christ here is a title. He is Jesus the Christ. The word Christ is the Greek version of the Jewish word Messiah, and it's talking about the fact that there was an anointed one, a promised one from God, who was going to come and make right that which was wrong between God and man. So when Paul calls Jesus Christ here in verse one, excuse me, verse three, he's saying to you, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is that promised one. He is the Christ. Well, what did the Christ do? He died for our sins. This is how he was going to make right 
what was wrong between God and man. And there's a, a theological term for this little phrase here. It's called the substitutionary atonement. I think I may have used that phrase even last Sunday. I'm not sure. But that's just a, a, a fancy way of talking about this idea that Jesus atoned or paid for our sins by making himself a substitute, by taking our place. And there's a couple of ideas that are wrapped up in that. First, whenever you use the word sin, understand you're not just using a normal vocabulary word. You're using a theologically loaded term. So we can talk about mistakes, and we can talk about shortcomings, and we can even talk about failures, and all of those are just standard fare for us as humans. But when you use the word sin, you are talking about a violation of the moral law of the eternal God of the universe. And you are also then talking about the fact that because you have broken God's moral law, because you have violated this law that he has set up for mankind about what we should be and shouldn't be, what we should do and should do, that you are rightly deserving of God's anger, punishment, and wrath. You are a criminal. Maybe we should quit using the word sinner. Not really, I would never do that. But maybe we should start calling people criminals. Maybe that would get their attention a little bit better to understand that you've broken God's law. You are a sinner. You are a criminal. And like any criminal in our world today, you deserve punishment. There is retribution that should be coming to you. That retribution was God's wrath. That retribution was, was uh, our separation from God. Jesus is taking our place in that. Rather than us receiving the wrath and us receiving the separation, Jesus is taking this, what we saw last week, because of our sin. And so he died for our sins. Uh, uh, he took all of that in our place in order to restore us to God. And after he died in our place, Paul says he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. And of course, this is important when we think of our salvation. We tend to focus on the cross, and that's good and right because because that's where the sin is paid for, but it is the empty tomb that gives that sacrifice real power. It, it, it's, it's not, they're not two separate things. They're one and the same. It's the empty tomb that gives us hope. This is why we worship on Sunday mornings and not Friday afternoons. This has been the practice of the church since the beginning. And so, so all of this, Paul says then, just to sum it up here, is that it, it's all in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, the sending of the Messiah, his death on our behalf, uh, his resurrection from the dead, all of this was or in order to make us right with him forevermore, promised by God in the Old Testament. This, Paul says, is the gospel. It's the gospel we proclaim. It's the gospel we believe. It's the gospel we have to hold to. Now, before I move on, let's stop and go back in this just for a second and I want to ask you to notice something that is, I don't know what percentage to put on it, 99.99% .99 of the time ignored. It is this little phrase right here whoop, that he was buried. How many of you, and don't raise your hands, uh, but how many of you have spent a, a countless hours on your knees before the Father meditating on the burial of Jesus? How many of you have had really substantive conversations with unbelievers, friends or family, co-workers, whatever the case may be, where you're really trying to convince them of the, of the significance of the burial? So you've probably thought about and perhaps talked about all of the other components here, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the, the God-man, the divine 
the divinity come now down into human form. You've probably had conversations or thought about that. You've probably talked to people about Jesus dying for our sins. You've talked about the crucifixion. You've talked about his resurrection. I'm going to guess, and I don't want to know that I'm wrong, I want to guess that nobody has really ever stopped and thought about the burial of Jesus. And yet something's really interesting. As you look across all four Gospels, there are very, very, very few stories, scenes, moments that are recorded by all four gospel writers. Very few. You'd be shocked even of some of the ones that are left out sometimes between all four of them. Three might talk about it and one leaves it out. Did you know the burial is talked about by all four? Is that important to them that they, <laughs> they all cover it? Here Paul is giving a, a, a synopsis of the gospel to the, to the Corinthians. So you think if it's a synopsis, if it's a just a summary, kind of a basic concept. Why include the gospel? Why not leave that out and just get right to the meat of it? Well, maybe the gospel is part of the meat of it. Uh, maybe we've misunderstood this thing and not really thought about it like we should. And so I think we need to think about it a little more. Today we're going to look at the last here of these five scenes that I told you about in Mark chapters 14 and 15. And this is Jesus in the tomb. And by now you've come to realize, I think fully, that even though I have broken this into five separate scenes for our consideration, it's really just one story. It's, it's been an ongoing story since Mark chapter 14. Is, that was Thursday morning, Jesus sending his disciples into the city to find a place where they could celebrate the Passover together all the way up until now, which is Friday afternoon. It has taken us 10 weeks in Mark to cover about a 24 to 36 hour time period. All the stuff we've been looking at here for 10 Sundays, that includes today, 10 Sundays was in within a day to a day and a half. That's something. But today, in line with how Mark is leading us, I think it's time to bring this portion of Jesus' story to its final and proper conclusion. And as you'll see, I think, as we walk through this, it is really both a somber and kind of serene moment in the midst of what has been a a really crazy, crazy time here in Jesus' life. So let's just, let's start working through the text and see where this thing takes us. Mark picks up right here where he left off in verse 42. He says, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now let's back up and understand what's going on here. Uh, notice that Mark gives us a timestamp. He said when evening had come. And so uh, for the Jews, that would be kind of our afternoon, the late afternoon time period since their days begin and end at sunset. So, so uh, the last timestamp we had was that it was the ninth hour when Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ninth hour is what time? Who remembers? 3 p.m., right around that time right there, our 3 p.m. And so about 3 p.m. our time, Jesus is crying out from the cross. And then we don't know how much time elapses from that cry until his death, but it's not a lot of time. So we're, we're just a little bit after 3 o'clock when Jesus dies here. And that he was truly dead must have been clear to everyone watching because as we saw last Sunday, even the Roman centurion recognized it and confessed him as Lord there at the end of his life. And so what is happening here in verses 42 to 43 must be occurring pretty soon. I mean, I want to give a time stamp because I don't know, but it must be pretty soon after his death. He gives us one other time stamp of sorts. He tells us that it is the day of preparation, and then he clarifies for us what that means. He says it's the day before the Sabbath. In other words, it's Friday. 
So Sabbath is coming. You can't work on the Sabbath. This is the day you got to get ready. You got to prepare your food. You got all your stuff done for that day because you can't work. And so we are at Friday afternoon, right before the beginning of the Sabbath at sunset. And this is important because for the Jews, they could not leave a dead body hanging on a cross after sunset, particularly, particularly when the next day is the Sabbath. And you say, why? Why couldn't they do that? Well, they couldn't do it because God in the Old Testament law had demanded they not do this. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23, we read, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. But you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So you see, they can't leave him here. It would be a violation of God's law, but, but, but there's a problem with this, right? Who is going to bury him? And, and you, you think about this question for a moment. If it was us, if, if it was a scenario here, and someone that you knew, a friend, a family member, was dead, who would bury him in your circumstances? Well, you would. As a friend, as a family member, it would be your responsibility, your your privilege, if you love that person, to, to take care of their body. And yet, um, that's not what's happening here. And there's a reason for it, I think. Think about this. Put yourself in the shoes of the friends and family of Jesus for just a moment. What are you going to do? Are you really, are you really going to go to Pilate, the Roman governor, and say, hey, remember that guy that you crucified for treason against Rome? He was my buddy. I'd really like to have his body because I love him and what he stood for very much. Or you're a family member. Like, hey, that guy that was, was killed for being a traitor, that's my brother. It's my son. I, I like him. and I, You're going to be a little hesitant to do that. Because if Rome killed him for treason, and now they think that maybe you're connected to him in some way, puts you in some suspicion also. Always say, okay, well, then we wouldn't go to the, the Roman leaders. We'll go to the Jewish leaders instead. They're a lot safer here. Uh, hey, remember that guy that you crucified because you hated him and because he claimed to be the Christ? I was a follower of his. Can I have his body? It's easy for us in the moment to think, well, of course we would, we would step up and take that. But understand that for the friends and family of Jesus at this moment, given what is going on, going to identify themselves with Christ now. They haven't done that in this whole process up to this point. They abandoned him to the trial. They abandoned him to his scourging. They've abandoned him to his crucifixion. You think now, now all of a sudden they're going to get courage and go and identify with him in his death? Uh, no, I, I'm not shocked at all. I think that's a, I'm not saying that's definitely the reason, but it's a pretty good explanation, I think, of why none of his friends or family members want to, to bury him because they don't want to associate themselves with him any more now than they did before. And yet one person, probably one of the least likely of all, decides to step in. Mark tells us that a man named Joseph took courage. Note those words. He, he, he took courage. He's realizing the scenario. He takes courage, and he goes to Pilate, and he asks for the body of Jesus. Now, we don't know much about this guy. I'm just going to outline what we do know about him, because sometimes when you see figures like this pop up in Scripture, legends build up around them and wrong ideas build up around them that, that are not biblical at all, but we begin to believe. Uh, we know where he's from. Mark calls it Arimathea. We think this is another name for a, 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 Jew, a Jewish town 
called Ramathaim, which was a little ways away from Jerusalem, a good, good distance away. It's just a city there in Judea. Mark tells us this guy was a respected member of the council. And the question is, which council? Well, the name of this council is the Sanhedrin. I haven't used that word a lot, but, but this is the name of the Jewish ruling council that oversees all of the things that are going on in the land for, for Rome. And the, the full Sanhedrin, the full ruling council, was made up of 71 men. These are 71 men from all over the country. These would be uh, business leaders. These would be politically connected individuals. These would be wealthy men, religious leaders. All of these guys together uh, would make up this full body known as the Sanhedrin. As you look at Matthew's account of the same story, Matthew tells us that Joseph was indeed a rich man. Uh, so he would fit very nicely within the, the general context. However, the full council of 71 men only met occasionally. Only occasionally, and only if it was a matter of national importance that they had to decide. The general day-to-day -day ruling, the general day-to-day -day operations of the Sanhedrin was handled by a much smaller number of men, 23 to be exact, who were made up primarily of religious leaders who lived there in Jerusalem. The high priest acting as their default president, de facto president, excuse me, He's the de facto president of this, what they call the Lesser Sanhedrin. And so the Lesser Sanhedrin would make the majority of the day-to-day -day decisions and only in rare occasions would they need to pull in the full Sanhedrin to make national decisions. This is uh, kind of the scenario we think. It was probably just that smaller group that tried Jesus that night in the high priest's house. Everything in the context would lead us to think that. And from what little we know about Joseph here, it doesn't seem that Joseph is a part of that smaller group. It seems that he's a member of the the larger, the greater Sanhedrin. He's not a priest. He's not from Jerusalem, so he wouldn't seem to fit in that, and therefore, he wouldn't have been involved with the trial. And as an interesting little side note, Luke, in uh, Luke 23, 51, tells us very specifically that Jose uh, Josephus, that Joseph did not agree with, he did not consent to either their decision or their action regarding Jesus. So when he hears about what they've done, he says, I, no, I don't agree with that, but of course, it's too late at this point, and so Jesus is already dead. The, the only other detail that Mark includes here about Joseph was that he himself was looking for the kingdom of God. And I think this is Mark's way of telling us that, that Joseph here is a follower of Jesus. Mark says it uh, explicitly, uh, excuse me, Matthew says it explicitly in Matthew 27 that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. John calls him a secret disciple. Um, rabbit trail. So uh, uh, this makes me laugh whenever I see this kind of wording when uh, Nathaniel was young. He's not in the room, I don't think, so I'm going to tell the story. Uh, oh, he's over here. Uh, love you. Uh, when Nathaniel was young, I'm thinking like two or three. I was still in seminary. We didn't have any money. And so uh, it was Christmas time, and I took him out to get a Christmas present for Jamie. And I don't remember if it was I was getting her the present or he was getting her the present, whatever. We're at Target. I didn't have any ideas, I'll be honest. We're at Target, and we're walking around, and lo and behold, I see the movie Ever After. You know the one with Drew Barrymore? Jamie loves that movie. We didn't own it, and so, so don't shake your head, Mike. It's a good movie. Uh, <laughs> we see the movie, and it was on sale, and I'm like, perfect, perfect, that's it. So we go, and we buy the movie, and we get in the car, and I say to Nathan, now listen, this is mommy's present, okay? It's a secret. We cannot tell her. She can't know until Christmas. It's a secret. He's like, okay, Dad, right? We get home, we come in the house, and he's all excited. We got mommy a present, right? And so Jamie, 
messing around with him, says, so what did you get me? And he looks at her, he goes, it's a secret, a secret movie. <laughs> John tells us that Joseph is a secret disciple, okay? He's, he, he follows Jesus, but he clearly doesn't want to be known as a follower of Jesus because he's probably concerned about his position, but, but he is a follower. And so this makes him a little unique as a character in this part of the story because everybody else who has been in leadership at this moment has definitely not been on Jesus' side. Here's an exception. Uh, the only other guy who, who was open to Jesus' teaching as, from a leadership perspective was Nicodemus. Remember him? John tells us that Nicodemus actually helps Joseph with the burial of Jesus. But, but all of that aside, as a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph is a leader of Israel. He's not one of the religious leaders. He's a believer in Jesus. And it's in that context that you need to understand why he is taking courage now to go ask Pilate, for the body of Jesus. Because not only now is he, as a leader of Israel, identifying himself to the Roman governor as being a friend of the traitor, but he is going against what everyone else in his Sanhedrin, that lesser Sanhedrin at least, wanted. We have no idea. We have no idea what happens to him after this. None at all. He's putting his position on the line, maybe a lot more than that, yet he does it. He takes courage, goes to Pilate, asks for the body of Jesus. And Pilate's response here probably confirms what we thought already uh, about uh, his view of Jesus back during the trial phase. You know, rather than treating Joseph suspiciously as, oh, you're a friend of that guy? I, he was a traitor. You, you get none of that. All you get from Pilate is he's surprised that Jesus is already dead. Um, and I think this confirms that Pilate knew quite well that Jesus wasn't, he wasn't a traitor. He, he knew quite well that the, the priests were railroading this man to his death, and he went along with it. He went along with the murder of an innocent man to appease the priests and to appease the crowds, and his only reaction here is surprise at the speed of his death. And so he asked the centurion, probably the one who was at the cross, if in fact Jesus was really dead. The centurion confirms it, and so Pilate gives him the body. And now Mark begins to kind of wrap the story up by describing what would have been a very normal though rushed burial in that culture. They begin by taking the body down off the cross. And none of the gospel writers record this, but it would have been very traditional, very likely that they would have washed his body somewhat at this point just to clean him a little bit. They then wrap his body in a linen shroud or sheet. And I'll just pause and make sure it is very clear for anyone in this room who does not understand this, that we are not talking about the Shroud of Turin. I'm sorry, it is not the burial shroud of Jesus at all, nor of any other first century Jew for that matter. The, it, it is at the oldest from the Middle Ages, and it is most likely a forgery and a bad one at that because it shows the face of a white European man. Just saying, all right? The body is, is wrapped in a sheet, a shroud, and it is most likely used then to carry him to the tomb. And just a couple of thoughts about the tomb of Jesus. Again, despite... Whatever you have heard or thought in the past, we have no idea which tomb Jesus was buried in. You say, but I saw that one online. Uh, we have no idea. There are hundreds of tombs. There are probably more tombs than we even know of because there's more that are buried. We have no idea which one it is. And no matter what anyone television tells you, 
Don't believe it. Second, I want you just to understand because it's helpful for what's going on here and why even certain events will happen uh, two mornings from now. Um, I want you to understand a little bit about just ancient Jewish burial customs. Uh, Mark mentions that a tomb, a tomb here that has been cut out of the rock, and as an example only, only, here is a picture of this kind of tomb. Now, please understand that when we talk about this kind of tomb, this is not your average man's tomb, all right? If you're an average Joe or an average Joshua or whatever it would be in, in, in Israel, um, you're going to be buried underground. You're going to be buried in maybe just a natural cave somewhere that your family has used to, to pay a crew of men to chisel through solid rock and create a burial chamber. Boy, how expensive and difficult would that be today? That would be really expensive and difficult today. Imagine how much more so back then. This, this isn't a, a, a tomb for an average person, nor is it even a tomb for an individual person. This is a family tomb that a very rich family would, would pay for so that they could have a, a kind of an investment for the future of their entire family there in that vicinity. Uh, third, just as another point of clarification, in a normal burial, once the body had been brought into the tomb like this, the Jews would wrap the body with, with, with fabric. Now, Think of the picture of mummification without the process of mummification. They're not embalming it. They're not trying to preserve it. They're just wrapping the body in cloths. And as they do so, they would pack it with spices and, and perfumes and ointments. Uh, obviously, they're to help fight the stench of decay, but probably also to try to prevent animals from wanting to, to get into the tomb and, and, and messing with the body. And once the body was prepared, it would be put on a shelf or a, like a burial niche that was carved into the wall of the tomb and and, and depending on the size of the burial chamber itself, depending on the wealth of the family and what they wanted to pay for, you could have multiple niches in the walls where multiple family members could be placed. And, and, and the purpose of this was to, to give some time, a location for, for time to take its toll on the body, for decay to just naturally set in. And, and then once the body had decayed and there was nothing left but bones, those bones would often be collected put into a small box called an ossuary. This is a picture of some ossuaries that would be uh, typical of the time. You notice that some are big, some are small, some are ornately decorated, some are pretty plain. Uh, obviously, the bigger and more ornate, the more expensive, the smaller, plainer ones are a little bit cheaper. This is uh, where they found that picture, that bone with the nail in it I showed you a couple weeks ago. It was in an ossuary there in, in Jerusalem. So th this is the kind of practice that would happen. And then once your bones were all in the ossuary, the ossuaries will be stacked in maybe the back of the tomb or in a separate chamber that had been created for it. And, and so again, in, in normal burials, in normal family situations, this would just be a kind of an ongoing, I hate to call it a conveyor belt, but a conveyor belt sort of process. Someone dies, you pack them, you, you wrap them, you put them on the shelf. While you're in there, you see that so-and-so is ready and you put their bones in a box and you put the box back there and now you got a shelf open for the next person who dies and it it's just this continuing process. That's how a normal burial worked. Jesus' burial, though, isn't 100% normal. Oh, I'm sorry. Skip this. The, the door. Understand that in, in, in Israel, people weren't buried with a lot of possessions like they were in Egypt. And so the issue of, of stones in front of graves is not there to keep people out. It's there to keep animals out. And to avoid, have them not come in, critters come in and... and mess with the body. And so you would either roll, this is one method, you could just place a stone, you could brick it, 
up and then break the bricks out when you needed to get back in. There's lots of kinds of different methods. It was fine. Jesus's tomb had a stone, and so this is an example. Anyway, that's how a normal burial worked. Jesus's burial, though, isn't 100% normal. First of all, he's not a wealthy man, but Joseph is. And, and, and several of the other gospel writers tell us that the tomb that Joseph put Jesus's body in was his own. He, he had commissioned a new tomb. In fact, uh, several of the gospel writers tell us that no one had been buried in it yet. And I'd love to know the story here. You know, Joseph isn't from Jerusalem. He's from Arimathea, so I'm assuming he's got a family tomb there. So why is their family commissioning a tomb in, in Jerusalem? I don't know. Maybe they're moving. Maybe they thought now they've come into money and they thought it'd be better to have a more prestigious tomb in Jerusalem. Who knows? But whatever the case, the tomb had apparently just recently been finished. It's so new, no one's died yet in the family to use it. So Jesus is being put in a new borrowed tomb. Both of these facts are unusual. And says something about Joseph's love of Jesus. Clearly, he wanted him in his family's tomb. Interesting. Secondly, the treatment of Jesus' body is a little unusual. But this is only because of how quickly they're trying to do this. They don't have a lot of time. They, they've got him off the cross. I don't know how long that took. Sunset's coming. And so, you know, they're, they're trying to get him wrapped. And they do a little bit, but they can't do everything. And this, folks, is why the women are coming back on Sunday morning. They're coming back to finish what they couldn't get done on Friday afternoon because they just simply didn't have the time to get it done. But for today... They've done what they can, and so they roll the stone in front of the door, and then Mark ends with another comment here about these women, seeing where Jesus was laid. And I won't say too much about this, just for time's sake, but the, but the focus on these women here at the end of Jesus' life is really, it's really unique and interesting. Uh, mainly because, remember I told you this before, that in, in, in first century Jewish culture, women were basically at the same level as slaves and servants in terms of their standing in society. Uh, if you're a woman in first century Israel, you have no rights. You have no voice. You have nothing you can do, no expectations. You're, you're not property per se like a slave was, but you're, you're pretty close to it. And yet, these women are the primary witnesses, eyewitnesses of all of these important events right at the end of Jesus' life. They're the ones at the cross. We're his disciples hiding. John maybe was there to the end. We don't know. He was there for at least a portion, but whether he stayed to the end, I don't know. But the women are there to the end. Uh, Mark is cl clear to point out that they're here at the tomb with him, and they're the ones who are showing up first thing on Sunday morning and see the tomb open and see the body gone. It's really, in my mind, a fitting conclusion to Jesus' very unusual and countercultural life and ministry. Uh, any other person, if you were making up this story, folks, you would never say that women were the eyewitnesses. Never. Not in that culture. Because their, their testimony is worthless. I'm like, hey, hey, the guy rose from the dead. You know how I know? Because she told me. <laughs> It'd be like, who? Why would you listen to her? That, that would be the mindset. And yet, they are the ones that Jesus uses to serve as the first and primary eyewitnesses of all of these events. Now, having walked through the details... What is the significance of the burial? Two things. First, it is important as a fulfillment of prophecy. It's important as a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, last week, I read to you a portion of Isaiah 53, specifically verses 1 through 6, where Isaiah is hundreds of years in advance describing the spiritual transaction that is going on on the cross as Jesus 
takes our wounds. He gets our stripes by, you know, that, that language and those ideas we read last week. Well, now I want to pick up where I left off last time in Isaiah, and I want to read verses 7 through 9 of that same chapter. I'll put it up here so you can follow. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off, cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Just continuing on, just a few more verses from what we saw last time, you see that it's continuing to unfold. Everything that Isaiah had prophesied, everything the Old Testament said is coming true in this set, uh, the sacrificial death of, of Jesus here that we've been reading about, Mark 15, uh, 14 and 15. But it's also the fulfillment of a prophecy that Jesus himself made. Uh, listen to this interchange between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees that Matthew records. Mark doesn't record this particular one, but Matthew records it. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's he saying? Well, he's predicting he's going to be buried. Heart of the earth for, for three days. And on that note, because I'm not going to do it next week, I'll just say it today. Let me help you understand the three days so there's no confusion. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He goes in Friday afternoon before sunset, so that counts as Friday. He's obviously in all day Saturday, sunset to sunset, and he's in Sunday from the sunset of the previous night until the morning. And you say, well, that's not 72 hours. You're really good at math. Good job, okay? Remember, we tend to think from our modern American mindset when we think and count these kinds of things. You have to think and count from a Jewish, first century Jewish mindset. And in their mindset, if you're in any part of the day, you're in that day. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Three days in the heart of the earth. So it's a fulfillment of that prophecy. Second, and finally here, his burial acts as both a moment of completion and anticipation. And, and if you take notes, those are the two words you should write down here. Completion and anticipation. To, to use maybe an unusual analogy, but stick with me for a moment because I think it'll make sense. You can liken the death and resurrection of Jesus to weights on either end of a, of a barbell, okay? On both ends, you've got these big, weighty events. So on the one end, you've got the death of Jesus, right? You, you've got the, uh, the death of Jesus is big. It's this eternally important things that are happening there. Uh, it's this amazing event, both historically and spiritually, right? The crucifixion, everything that happens, boom, big. And we get to the resurrection, and again, it's this huge event. It's got eternal consequences. There are amazing things happening here, both historically and spiritually, what ties these two huge, weighty events together? Well, it's the burial. 
It's, it's kind of like the bar that connects the weights and, and sort of binds them together. If you look at it from the perspective of the death of Jesus, the burial is the natural conclusion or completion of that story. I mean, what do you do to dead people? You bury them. It's, 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 it's even in our culture today, even though we do things very differently, it's, it's kind of the end. It's the moment of completion and closure in that person's life. And so from, from the perspective of, of, of Jesus' death, it, it's showing that he's really dead. <laughs> he's not just pretending. He's not just, you know, got a good act going and some kind of ruse to trick everyone. No, he's, he's died. He has laid down his life for our sins. He has sacrificed himself. And the burial is the very natural conclusion and completion of that story. But... As we begin to look, about, look at it and think about it from the perspective of the resurrection of Jesus, you realize that the burial provides the context from which the resurrection occurs, right? He doesn't just rise, he rises from the grave. Up from the grave he arose. We sing that song, but we never emphasize the word grave. He's rising from the grave, and, and what looks like the end of the story on Friday is now the beginning of the story on Sunday. And, and, and what looked like a place of grief and sadness on Friday is now a place of joy and happiness on Sunday. And what received and swallowed up the mortal body of Jesus on Friday can no longer contain his glorified body on Sunday. And what has been the defeater of all men on Friday is defeated on Sunday. This is what is happening here is that the burial ties these events together. Folks, just as it's true for Jesus, it's true for us as well. Spiritually speaking, we have been crucified with him, past tense. We have been buried with him, past tense. And we have been raised to new life with him, past tense. And we now get to live out that new life today. And then physically speaking, the glorious truth of the New Testament is that one day when Jesus returns, our perishable, mortal, broken, sin-ridden bodies that were swallowed up by the grave, will rise imperishable, immortal, and we will come out of our graves shouting with all of the saints that slogan from 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Jesus, we look forward to that day when these mortal bodies are put off and our immortal, imperishable, perfect, glorified body, the body like yours is given to us, and we are free to live out the fullness, the fullness of our new life in you forevermore. We know that right now we have a taste of it. We've already been crucified with you, buried with you, and raised again with you, and we're living out the newness of your life today. But still, something better is coming. That's a taste. That's a down payment. There's more to come. And so, so may we as believers remember that for us, death is not like it is for the rest of this world. The grave is not the final place for us. It may hold our bodies for a little bit, but that is all it can do. It can just contain us for a moment. But you are coming again, and when you come, we will experience a brand new life that gives fullness to everything we have hoped for, it is, it, is, it is the joy that we look forward to in the future to see you and live with you for all eternity. May that thought drive us in everything we think and do this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.